We're glad you're with us today on this particular episode. Well, actually, we started, uh, I think, last episode of All Things Apostolic. We talked about what does the Bible say about the future kingdom that is coming? It's going to be interesting, so stay with us. In studying about the coming of the kingdom of God, Old Testament history shows the multiple failures of Israel to obey God in becoming the people in the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth. God made these tremendous promises, and we will look at them in much more detail shortly. But he made these tremendous promises, and he made these covenants with uh, with the people. In all of that, though, they continued to fail, and these failures brought degrees of judgment, which resulted in any hope being lost of that kingdom being established through them in that day. However, all was not hopeless. God promised there would be a time in which there would be a day of restoration. These descriptive promises are woven throughout the Old Testament. The promise is a restoration of blessings that were lost by sin. The prophets, with very certain intentionality, merge the past possibilities with the promises of the future kingdom. An unmistakable example of this is the emphasis in the coming kingdom on the ruler who will be a son of David thus connecting the coming kingdom with the halcyon days past under David and the Old Testament kingdom. Further, to think of these promises as fulfilled in the church repeatedly becomes awkward and simply does not fit. The coming eternal kingdom in which Jesus reigns visibly as king over the earth is not the church age. The church age is characterized by what we already saw in the parable that Jesus gave because he was trying to get the people to understand, the Bible tells us this, to understand that the kingdom was delayed. It wasn't coming right then because of their unbelief. So the church age was characterized by God in Acts 15, 14, taking out of the Gentiles a people for his name's sake, and their job was to occupy till he comes. It's kind of a general statement. Gentiles and any Jews who are willing to believe occupy till he comes. And then he tells that those that occupy in that gap of delay between the present and the coming of the kingdom, those that occupy in that time end up being leaders within the kingdom. And so the, 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 there's not going to be two kingdoms, one for the church and one for Israel. There's going to be one kingdom on earth, but it's going to be tied to heaven, and there will be, in ways that we don't know all the details about, there will be room for all who are called to lead and to judge and to govern. So this uh, time called the church age 
is characterized by ministerial successes, people being one to God, people being brought into the kingdom, people repenting of their sins, as John the Baptist told them, repent for the kingdom is at hand. All of these people uh, that come in during the church age come in in a way that we could probably best describe as hidden. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not a geopolitical thing. It, it can happen and the empires of the world not even know what's going on, except in a secondary manner. And this has been true. You can look down through history and see that the real church working oftentimes, very seldom, is in the headlines. It's down under. It grows in a way very quietly. It lies hidden doing its work, long undiscovered for long periods of time. Now, how do we know this? Well, this is shown in Matthew 13 in which all the parables which Jesus uses in that chapter, there's seven parables, all of them which he uses has either the seed um, or the thing of value which represents the gospel, the word of God, hidden in either the ground or in bread or in water. All are working out of the limelight in contrast to the kingdom to come, which arrives exactly the opposite, where every eye is going to see him. And so when we look at uh, Matthew chapter 13, we immediately see the kingdom in three or four of those parables. The seed is dropped into the ground. It's underneath. It's, it's not immediately visible. Uh, then there's the parable of the placing of leaven or yeast in the dough. It's placed in there, and it has a tremendous impact on the loaf, but it's not visible. And then he talks about the pearl of great price, the pearl underwater, hidden, in a shell, hidden. You got to open the shell and you got to get down in the water to find it. Then you have to open the shell. You have to come to the surface. You have to, you have to take the pearl out and you find the pearl of great price hidden. When you look at the treasure, this is another of those seven parables, the treasure that is found hidden in a field. So here's a man plowing, and while he's plowing, the plowshare hits something, and it's a box or whatever, and he opens it, and there's a tremendous treasure that's been buried there in the field forever how long God knows and nobody's ever found it there. But this guy who is plowing in the field, he finds the treasure. He looks at it. He recognizes what it is. He closes the lid, puts the dirt over it, and goes and sells everything he has and buys the field wherein the treasure is buried. So the value of the treasure had to be seen, though, by someone who got down underneath. Again, another of the parables was a fisherman cast a net into the sea, and they catch many fish. Some of them are good. Some of them are not good. 
They, they throw them away. The good ones they keep to sell or eat, consume. And, um, but the fish are all under the water, and they have to be brought out of the water to the top. So he gives all of these perils, parables to show that the, the kingdom of God in the church age is not the geopolitical kingdom that's in the bright sunlight, that is um, in your face ruling the world out of Jerusalem. Instead, the kingdom during the church age, it's hidden in the human heart. It's, it's not a brick-and-mortar kingdom, but it's hidden in the human heart in millions of believers around the world. But the world goes on doing its thing while the church continues to grow. And so when we look at this, we can see here the difference between the kingdom in its spiritual component and, and the kingdom in its geopolitical and physical component. The spiritual component came at Pentecost where the church received the promises that are intended to come with the geopolitical and physical component when Christ reappears, and it will come. But it has now come from the first coming of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. It has now come in its spiritual form. This is why you can be saved during this time. And this is why we are to occupy. That's a missional statement, a missional mandate, a missional command that we go and we occupy. We take territory uh, during the time uh, before the second coming of Jesus. So when we look at this, uh, we finally come to the question of what does the Bible say that the future kingdom will look like? What's involved with the future kingdom? So this is a big subject, but a preeminent theme of the time of the coming kingdom probably above all other themes that we could talk about, is the theme of salvation. Isaiah declares, it shall be said in that day. Anytime you see the phrase that day or the day or the day of the Lord, uh, uh, and there's other phrases that go with that. Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. The, uh, uh, in fact, in the Premier Study Bible, in I think the note on Revelation 6, 17, I think it is, or 6, 14, it gives a whole list of phrases that indicate the day of the Lord. Uh, and the day of the Lord is prominent, very prominent, in all of these promises about the coming of the kingdom because the coming of the kingdom is preceded by the coming of the day of the Lord. Sometimes the phrase day of the Lord will actually, things in the millennium will actually be completed, uh, included in the phrase. But the phrase uh, is primarily a day of doom and judgment. Uh, but out of that, the people will see uh, the the need of the Savior. They will recognize, they will get revelation of who the Savior is. They will embrace him. And the embracing of him is going to be the bringing back of the king physically. So um, 
When it says here in Isaiah, it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This idea of salvation. Now, when you talk about the word salvation, you, 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 need, you need to understand that um, another word that the word salvation can be translated into is deliverance. So salvation means deliverance. There will be the, the, new, the new kingdom will be characterized by deliverance, deliverance from sin, but in each individual, but also deliverance from the, uh, from the complications that have come to the world through sin and all of the things that are the outgrowth of sin. And so salvation here uh, is a broad term where the whole of the thing is going to be transformed. It's going to be an enormously big transformation from what we have now. When deliverance has come, when salvation has come, uh, when, when evil is quenched, um, then everything changes. The economy changes. There's no longer a multi-billion dollar military budget in every nation to keep peace on the earth. And so taxes go down. There's no longer a, a multi-billion dollar uh, medical and health complex. And so all of these taxes dramatically go down. Uh, there's no longer the need for a multi-billion dollar prison system. Uh, so all of these taxes go down and on and on we could go, showing just with the word salvation and deliverance how radical is the transformation uh, in the governmental and actual everyday life structure of the earth in which we live. And so here finally, after all of these centuries and millenniums, here is worldwide glorious deliverance. Now, now, this is not just one or two passages. Many are the passages which show this, of which, um, um, let me just give you a few, and, I, and you don't have time to look them up right now, but if you listen to this again, you will have them. Isaiah 26 and 1, Isaiah 35 and 4, Isaiah 49, 26. Um, let me repeat that, Isaiah 26 and 1, 35 and 4, 49 and 26, Jeremiah 26 and 6. Ezekiel 37, 11 through 14, and verse 23 also, and many other places that tell us about the, um, the quality of life and the victory that comes from this deliverance. So, so what happens here is the dominion that was lost by Adam, the first man, is now restored to the last Adam, the second man, which is the Messiah, which is the Christ. Psalm 2, 6 through 9, Psalm 8 and 6, Hebrews 2 and 8. There's numerous other scriptures, but those are primary and they show what we're talking about here, that the prince of this world, which is Satan, is expelled from dominion and Christ becomes the king. I'm intentionally giving you some of these scriptures now so that you will be able to look them up. Micah 4, 1 through 7, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, John 14, 30, Revelation 11, 15, 
uh, and many others. It's a time when the saints shall reign and rule. Now, we've been reading about this in the New Testament. We've been seeing these promises in the Old Testament. We just got through talking about these in a and just a little bit back in a previous lesson, uh, saints shall rule and they'll reign. And this is seen both in the Old and the New Testament, Daniel 7, 21 and 22, Revelation 20 and 4, Isaiah 32 and 1. All of these things are part and parcel of what's going to take place and many, many other things. We're going to take time. We're going to go through a long list of the component elements and the characteristics of the kingdom of God when it comes in its consummating form in the earth.